But we want to open uh, today in the book of uh, 2 Corinthians, and I want you to dig into this with us, because we're going to be talking about the gospel of reconciliation, and uh, some of the greatest news that I've ever heard, the greatest news I've ever heard, is this news, is what we're talking about today. Many of you know the story of the fall of humanity. I don't believe it's a fairy tale. I believe it's real. In the book of Genesis, we, we learn about Adam and Eve, two humans that God created. We learn about how they walked with God, how they knew God. In fact, the Bible tells us they were naked and unashamed. They had no shame. They had no fear. They knew no evil. I don't know about you, but when I thought about the Garden of Eden that they dwelt in, I, I wonder what that place might have been like. And in that place, it wasn't just a place of beauty. It wasn't just a place of, of, of comfort. It was a place where God was with them. We know the story of how God said you can eat from any tree in this garden. Every tree in this garden is yours except for this one. Don't touch this one. This one's mine. And he said, this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from it. And if you do, you'll die. But we find out that Adam and Eve were deceived. There was a serpent. Satan came in the form of a serpent, disguised, and convinced them and, uh, of, the, of the ultimate lie that we still fall for today, that God doesn't want what's best for you. He just wants to control you. He just wants to be smarter than you. He doesn't want you to be wise like him. You know, John says in 1 John that the spirit of the world is this, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And you know, that's the spirit of the world. That's what you get in the world, and that's exactly what Adam and Eve fell for. The lust of the flesh, Satan said, doesn't it look like it would taste good? It'll taste delicious. The lust of the eyes, he said, doesn't it look pretty? And the pride of life, he says, don't you want to be like God? Don't you want to be like God? God doesn't want you to ascend like him. See, Satan sold them the ultimate lie that he bought into, that you could be just as big as God. Don't you want to be like that? And they bought it. They took of the fruit. They ate it. As Adam observed Eve, couldn't observe any difference in her when she took a bite. He took a bite too. And I don't know if they had any concept of what death was. How would they know? They'd never seen death. So when God says you'll surely die, how do you know what that looks like? See, see we say, well, well, they must have looked at her and said, well, you didn't drop dead. How would they even know what dropping dead looks like? They wouldn't even have any concept of this. But you'll surely die. What does that mean? Well, we know that when they disobeyed God, something broke immediately. Something snapped immediately, and they felt it. Because the Bible tells us after they ate, they the body wasn't any different, but immediately they felt ashamed. Immediately they felt shame. Immediately they had to go and cover themselves. They cut, they cut leaves and uh, uh, wrapped them around themselves and tried to cover themselves because with sin came shame. Shame does not exist outside of sin. It came with sin. And so they, they immediately felt shame. They tried to cover themselves, but it didn't work. And then the Bible tells us that in the cool of the day, or literally the ruah, the breath of the day, the, the evening breeze, God was walking in the garden, and he called out for them. And I wonder if, 
I've got to think that this was not the first time God had been walking in the garden in the cool of the day. In fact, I would believe, even though the Bible doesn't explicitly say it, I'd find a hard time believing that the first time God walked in the garden was when they sinned. you got to think that God already was walking with them. This was the time of day that they got to walk with God. Throughout the Bible, that was a sign that someone was godly, someone was close to God, was that it says they walked with God. Enoch walked with God. Noah walked with God. Moses walked with God. These are people that walked with God. And so to walk with God was the highest honor. And so I can imagine that every day in the evening breeze, God would walk with them. When I was a kid, I used to think, I wonder if someone would search hard enough we could find the Garden of Eden. Maybe just start, start around Iraq, Iran, and try to find the place. Go to the river Euphrates and try to follow it. See, that, that place doesn't exist like that anymore. Indiana Jones is not going to find the Garden of Eden. Even if the franchise had stayed strong. He's not going to find the Garden of Eden. Because that place doesn't exist like it was. I used to think the greatest thing about the Garden of Eden was it was so pretty or beautiful or safe. But you know what the greatest thing about the Garden of Eden was? God was there. God was with them. They knew his presence. They knew his love. They knew his life. See, because God doesn't just have life. He is life. And when you're separated from life, what are you? Dead. Adam and Eve, their bodies didn't drop dead right away. Death started to work in their body. You see, they could have lived forever, but now death has begun its process. From the time we hit an age, and, and I think you all kind of know when it is for everybody, but you hit an age where you feel like you stopped growing up and you started the process of growing down or something. You, you've, <laughs> nobody wants to admit it, but you feel that your body doesn't do what it used to do. You can't bend like you used to bend. I, I, was still, I shot some hoops with my son, and I wanted to go all night, but my body's like, no, we can't go all night. We're not doing that. Play soccer with him, and I still try to make the big moves, and, and your knees go, this is not what we agreed to. <laughs> now, thank God, I believe, my, you know, I'm praying my, my, I'll, my body will hold out as long as it needs to be strong and, and serve the Lord to an old age. But still, these bodies weren't made to last. They're temporary. That began with that sin. And so when they were separated from God, they were separated from life itself. Everything good is in him. He is the source of good. He doesn't just have it. He is it. And so when you're separated from that, that's what darkness looks like. That's what hell looks like. It's separation. And so here, Adam and Eve hide themselves. When they hear God walking, they hide themselves as if he can't find them. And God asks a question because whenever God asks a question, whenever Jesus asks a question, it wasn't because he didn't know the answer. It was because he needed you to hear the question. He said, where are you? And finally they come out and they, you know, Adam immediately because with shame comes blame. Right? They go together. Immediately Adam blames his wife. It was the woman you gave me. And he doesn't even just blame his wife. He kind of blames God. It was the woman you gave me. Like a defective. I don't know if the warranty's out, but she did it. You gave her to me, so there's a flaw. It's on your end. I'm not saying, I mean. And God in his great mercy, first of all, he tells them, this is what broke. You broke something. It broke it for everybody. It broke something tragic. But I have a plan. 
And not only did he clothe them himself, he clothed them with animal skins. He made a sacrifice for them and clothed them. But then he also said, I, he, said to the, he said to Eve, he said, your seed, your descendant is going to crush the head of that serpent. He made a promise that redemption was coming. And for the rest of the Bible, the rest of history, he's telling his people, get ready, redemption's coming. Get ready, I'm going to restore what was lost. Get ready, I'm going to fix this. Get ready, I'm going to heal this. Get ready, life is coming back. And his people would hear it. And some would get excited, and some would act excited and then forget about it next week. Because when Jesus came, all those people that he'd been telling, get ready, get ready, get ready, most of them were not ready. And by the time he came, he said, the Bible says he came to his own, but his own did not recognize him. They did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave the right to be called the children of God. So we, we pick up here. In the story of the fall of mankind, of, of what died, but now through Jesus, what's been resurrected. And we come to a word, reconciliation. You can't have reconciliation unless there was first conciliation. And reconciliation is the restoration of all things. In fact, the scripture tells us that we're in the process of that right now. That God is restoring and reconciling all things to himself. It's not done. The process isn't done. If you've looked around, the world's still pretty broken. But he will reconcile all things to himself. And here's what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. 2 Corinthians 5 talks about the temporary and the eternal. It talks about the fact that the body is going to die, but that doesn't mean death. In fact, he says, he uses this term, and the Bible uses it a lot in the New Testament. He uses the term to fall asleep. Because believers, once you're a believer, you don't die. You fall asleep. And I know that sounds weird, but because your body is dead. Your body's, your body's dead, dead, dead. But to fall asleep indicates that this is not permanent. Do you panic when your spouse falls asleep next to you? Do you worry this is, oh, no, they're not moving. No, you know they're going to wake up. Jesus said about Lazarus, he's fallen asleep. Our, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. We're going to go wake him up. The disciples said, if he's just asleep, he'll wake up by himself. And Jesus said, the Bible says he had to say to them plainly, he's dead. But I use the, he uses the word sleep because there's a resurrection coming. So in the New Testament, whenever it talks about us, it says those that have fallen asleep in Christ. Those that have fallen asleep. It says some have fallen asleep early. It says whether you have whether you sleep or remain, we'll be with the Lord. There's, a, there's this term used about us. We fall asleep. So we don't die. We fall asleep. And what does that mean? That means we're waiting on the resurrection. And so here he says, he's been talking about that. We pick up in verse 11. He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. This is 2 Corinthians 5.11 is where we started. We are not again committing ourselves to you, but we are taking, are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we're beside ourselves, in other words, if we're crazy, it's for God. If we're of sound mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all. So that they who live might no longer live for themselves, 
but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, because of that fact, from now on, we recognize nobody according to the flesh. Now that's a decision. I don't, ha- I don't view you based on what you brought to the table. I can't view you based on who you are in the flesh. I can't view you based on your history. I can't view you like that. I have to view you after the spirit now. I have to look at you differently. You're a different person. And we choose not to know each other after the flesh. I choose that that's not how I'm going to know you. It's really easy to know people that way. You know, we live in a culture that tribalizes people all the time. What do you believe about this, 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 and this? And then we separate each other into groups. Oh, you're one of them. You're not one of us. You're one of them. It's a culture of separation. When you get separated from God, you become a separator. There is, there is a, a, a sickness of separation. Separation from God causes us to be sep- those that cause separation, cause division. In fact, the, the, one of the things Paul said, he says, this is one of the final things I'm going to say to you in this letter. Beware of those that cause divisions. Why? Because that's not the spirit of God. He says, look out for those folks. He knows that they'll show up in church. When we allow our hearts to be separated, we cause separation. But I love this. He says, we don't recognize anyone according to the flesh, even though we've known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Literally in the Greek it says, behold, new things. I love that. It says, old things have passed away, but pay attention. That's what behold means, right? Pay attention. You know, we spend most of our testimony talking about what died. Thank God for that. We should talk about what we've been delivered from. Your testimony should tell. This is who I was, but Jesus saved me. But that can't be the main thrust. Because he says, old things have passed away, but behold, pay attention to this. I know so many believers that their identity as believers is, well, we don't do this anymore. I used to be an alcoholic. I'm not anymore. Praise the Lord. Who are you now? An ex-alcoholic. No, you're more than that. Right? Do you think Jesus walked around not sinning? That that was all he did? Just can't sin. (sighs) Careful. Don't look at that woman the wrong way. Okay. Don't drink too much of that. Okay. uh. Or do you think that Peter described him well when he said, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil? Did he sin? No. But his whole identity was not a non-sinner. See, that's a sin consciousness. That we identify everything, we, we relate everything to sin. Instead, can we relate everything to God? The Bible says, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. I have to die to sin, but I am alive to God in Christ Jesus. My life can't be about what I'm not. It has to be about what I am. And he says, if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creature. Old things have died. Behold, new things. I, I, I believe as a church, we really need to spend some time figuring out what those new things are. He says, behold, new things have come. Verse 18 says this, now all these things are from God. All these things are from God. And here's the purpose of why we've received them. These things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
So what ministry did Jesus have? The ministry of reconciliation. And then what did he give to you? The ministry of reconciliation. Is that what your life is about? Do you spend your time thinking about it, praying about it, wondering, dreaming about it? We know what we care about because we dream about it. We daydream. We think about it. We wake up thinking about it. We go to sleep thinking about it. That's what you care about in your life. If you've ever wondered what's most important, that's it. So if you go to sleep thinking about your favorite sports team, you wake up thinking about your favorite sports team, your favorite sports team might be the most important thing in your life. If you go to bed worrying, if you wake up worrying, then worrying has become a central point of your life. But if you have become consumed in who God is and who he's made you to be, you'll find that your dreams are affected, your thoughts are affected. Those bursts of energy you get when you all of a sudden have an idea, it's going to be about that. Because that's what's occupying your heart. It's what you'll talk about on a long road trip when you've got nothing else to say because you're terrible at small talk. It'll come up because that's what you care about. He gave you his ministry, which is a ministry to reconcile. So the word ministry in the Greek is not, a, is not as fancy as we think it is. We think of the ministry. Oh, you're called to the ministry. Ooh. How many people carry your Bible? Five. I got three people that just get me water. That's all they do. I have a ministry. No. Do you know what the word ministry literally means? It means a servant. It's the word we'd use for a waiter. (laughs) Now, I know I'm not trying to bash myself here, but I'm your waiter this morning. Thank God for servers, hey? Aren't you grateful for servers? Aren't you grateful you don't have to walk to the back and see what the chef has cooked? Someone brings it to you, and they're always nice even when you're mean. Thank God for these wonderful servers, and many of you have done that in your life and and, and had to deal with the junk people throw at you. But, But a server doesn't make the food. A server receives it so that they can give it. They don't receive it and then eat it all themselves. No, they receive it and then they give it. What do we do as ministers? We receive from God and we bring it. This is what I've received. Paul said this, I give to you what I received from the Lord. He didn't say, I was thinking one day and I came up with some crazy thoughts. He said, I am giving you what I've received. Jesus said to the disciples, freely you've received. Now freely give. So I want to know, do you have what it takes to do what God called you to do? The answer is no. But with him, yes. None of us have what it takes without him. But with him, absolutely you do. Because he's, he's the one making it. He's the one providing it. You're just the one that needs to carry it. He gave you the ministry of reconciliation. That means you hold in your hands the very power of God to bring people back to him. That's amazing. To undo the curse. Jesus undid the curse on the cross and the resurrection. You have the power to give that away to somebody. That's why Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God. (laughs) He didn't say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because God said, don't be ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because that's not what a Christian should do. He said, I'm not ashamed of it because it's powerful. It's the power of God that leads to salvation. Why would I be ashamed of that? But I think a lot of believers, we forget that that's what it is. And we just start to believe it's just the core tenant of our faith. Well, sure it is. 
But do you live like that? Like, do, you, do, do, you, do we think of it like it's just, well, it's part of our doctrinal creed. I mean, if it's that dry to you, dunk your head in some water. Come back. <laughs> Touch some grass. Come on, wake up. Because yeah. if that's all it is to us as well, I'm a Christian. And as a Christian, here's the, I mean, thank God for doctrinal creeds. Thank God for the Apostles' Creed. Thank God for core tenets. We need good doctrine, but it's got to be more than just a thought pattern to you. It's got to be more than philosophy to you. It's got to be more than an idea. It is life. And it is the power of God to salvation. You can bring someone back. If you learn CPR, you don't just say, well, I learned CPR so that I could say when I apply for a job, I know CPR. Now, maybe that's why you did learn it. <laughs> but that's not why they teach it. The reason they teach CPR is you might save someone's life. You have now the knowledge and the ability to bring someone back from dying. That's a big deal. So I'm not ashamed of this. And here he says he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, and so he, when he says namely, he says, I'm going to spell it out for you. Here's what it is. That God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The world to himself. Not counting their trespasses against them. Remember, it was our trespasses that broke the whole thing. That was the spanner in the works. That's what wrecked everything, our trespasses. Now he's not counting the trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word or the message of reconciliation. He committed it to you. He gave you the ball. The quarterback just slammed the ball into your breadbasket. Hold on to it. Not a lot of football fans. I get it. That's all right. <laughs> you find out who your crowd is. That's fine. Here he is committing to you the word. of What's the word? That's the message of reconciliation. What's the message of reconciliation? The gospel. Now, I know we all love to quote St. Francis of Assisi when he said, uh, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. But we quote it a little too much. Because it is necessary to use words, folks. It is, what, what Brother Francis was saying was you need to live it out. Don't let it just be in words. Let the gospel live out through you. And I wholeheartedly agree with that. But I've heard people abuse it so they never have to say anything. How, but the Bible says, how will they believe if there's not a preacher? Now you may say, well, thank God I wasn't called to be a preacher. Oh, but you are. Because a preacher is nothing but a proclaimer of good news. And we're all called to do that. The Bible doesn't say you have to have a microphone to be a preacher. You have to have, be ordained to be a preacher. I'm not talking about someone that stands up and teaches the whole church. I'm not saying that. I'm saying we are all called to preach this gospel because you've been committed. Remember, Paul doesn't say, me and my buddy have the word of reconciliation. He says, anyone is in Christ, they're a new creature. And this is the ministry. Now, look what he says. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. And we beg you. On behalf of Christ, what is an ambassador? It's someone who represents a nation or represents a, a, a somebody. It represents a company or a person or a nation. An ambassador is there on someone else's behalf. An ambassador doesn't set policy. An ambassador doesn't decide what it's going to be. An ambassador, once again, carries the message. 
We're here as ambassadors for Christ. I love Canada. I love this nation. I pray for this nation. I'm going to vote in the next election. I, I love this nation. But listen, this is not my true home. My citizenship is in heaven. I'm here as a missionary to Canada, and so are you. Whether or not you were born here or not, doesn't matter. You're a missionary to Canada. You're an ambassador of Christ to Canada. You hold another passport. And that's a heavenly passport. That's who you belong to. And that's, I'm sorry, but that's always going to come first to me. I'm not sorry. I'm not sorry. I take that back. I take that sorry back. I put it in my pocket. I'll save it for when I need it. <laughs> no shame. No shame in our game. All right. We beg you. You see, you can tell when Paul talks that he's not doing this because it's a chore. When he took on the ministry of Christ, he took on the heart. He said that when I, I he said, I, I long for you with the affections of Christ. When he took on the ministry, he took on the heart, the affection, the compassion, the love. He just said the love of Christ controls us. He said, if we seem crazy, that's why. If we seem crazy, it's for God. If we're beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're of sound mind, it's for you. Like, if we, if we have to talk sane, it's for your benefit. Because we're crazy. The love of Christ controls us. And he says the reason is, is because he died, and so we all die. Look at this. We beg you on behalf of Christ. That's someone who cares for souls. See, I, I wonder sometimes if I care for souls like he cared for souls. Do I care enough to humble myself and beg? Come on, to, to really plead with someone. Now, beg is not like whimpering. He's, he's saying, I'm pleading with you. Like when you really care about someone, you say, please, I am, I'm, I'm begging you to reconsider this. You're making a, you're making a bad decision or a good decision. I, I really want you to consider this. This is an opportunity you need to take advantage of. When you are pleading with someone, he's saying, I'm pleading with you. I care about you. On behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. Now, when he says be reconciled, he's pointing out a truth. Jesus already did the work. All you got to do is be reconciled. You don't have to do the work of reconciliation. It's not your job to die for your own sin, to atone for your own sin. You couldn't. But just be reconciled. Receive reconciliation. In fact, that's what I want to read you in Romans chapter 5. Skip over there for a minute. But before that, let me finish the verse. It says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the gospel. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 says, for while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Not when we were right, not when we were already getting our act together, but while we were still helpless, at the right time, don't you know that's the time that was determined before human beings were ever created? God already had this plan. You know, the Bible talks about the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. God already had a plan. You say, well, then why did he create us if he knew we were going to be such mess-ups? Why did he create us if he knew we were gonna, it was going to cost him so much? Take that up with him, but I, I would suspect it's because he loves you greatly. And I would suspect that he, he considered it worth it. One of the flaws in our own characters, we don't consider ourselves worth it, but he did. He considered us worth it. He considered his glory worth it. 
He did it. Why he did it? Talk to him. But he loved you with an everlasting love. And he drew you with his loving kindness. And he says this, while we were still helpless, he died for us at the right time. The ungodly, not the godly, but the ungodly. For one would hardly die for a righteous man. You find a righteous man, you're going to have a hard time saying, hey, but he's a good guy. Will you die for him? Try that. Walk around Lloyd. Who's your, fa- who's your favorite uh, person in the world? Not, not, not a family member, but who's a really good person that you think is just really great? Uh, I think it's this person. Okay, would you die for him today? No, I'm not going to die for them. He says one would hardly die for a righteous man. Though maybe, maybe for a good man, someone would dare to even die. Somebody might die for this person. But look at this. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were not loving, while we were not beautiful, while we were not good, he died for us. Much more than, I love that, much more than, having been now justified by his blood, we will be saved from the wrath of God through him. In other words, when judgment comes, when justice comes to the world, because God will make all things right, he'll do away with evil, and you want to be on his side when that happens. And when that happens... You get, I mean, right now, you get to choose. Do I stand for my own sins or do I accept the free gift? Because God will judge the world in righteousness. Not because, oh, he's a judgmental God. Because there has to be justice. Would you want to live in a society where nothing was ever done about evil? Crime was allowed to just go on. No, nothing, nobody stopped it. Nobody did anything about it. Is that the kind of world you want to live in? But what if evil had its way in the world? It's had its way in the world. God will make all things right. Problem is, is that we stood on the wrong side of that equation. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So that's why Jesus sent his son. That he would take away the sins of the world. Not just shift them around. Not just cover them. But take them away. So now we stand on the right side with God. Humble and thankful. God, thank you that I'm not judged with what I've done. I'm not judged, with what, I'm not judged on that side. I'm judged on this side. I'm in Christ. That's what he's offering. He says this, we will be saved. Much more will we be saved. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more. We need to celebrate the words much more. Much more, having now been justified by his blood. Sorry, I skip back to an old much more. There's so many much mores in this verse. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Having been reconciled, now we're saved by his life. His life saves every part of us. It saves your joy. It saves your imagination. It saves your body. It saves your relationships. Now being reconciled, much more. He says, we've been saved from hell. We've been saved from death. But now that we've been reconciled, what's different about us? What's changed about us? Tia and I and our son, we play a little game together little video game every now and then in which you build stuff. You find little blocks around the world, things around the world, and you build things. And we can be creative together. We can visit each other's houses, right? Right, Moses? Moses has a house on the beach. Right? Don't you wish you lived on the beach sometimes? Moses has a house on the beach. He's right next to a nice warm ocean. And so in the ocean, there's this coral. It's red and it's blue and it's purple. 
And you can take these blocks and you can build stuff with them. So one day I went over and I visited Moses and I acted like I was there to see Moses, but I was really there to steal his coral. And I, I went and I got that coral and I brought it back and I said, I'm going to build something with the red and the blue and the purple. And I was making an old west town in the Badlands. And so I was going to make a nice, I was going to use the coral as like fruit in the barrel. And I put it down. And immediately the beautiful red coral turned gray. Yeah. I was like, well, that's a flaw. That's a glitch. I took out the purple and I put it down and it turned gray. Now, there's different types of coral. You, you like, if you're an ocean fan, living in Lloydminster, bless your heart. But if you are, then you know there's brain coral, there's tubal coral, there's different kinds of coral. I had some brain coral and I had some tubal coral. And the minute I put the brain coral down, it turned gray and it, called, and it was now renamed dead brain coral, which sounds bad. Dead tubal coral. It's all gray. I went. I googled what in the world happened. <laughs> Why did that happen? It says if it gets separated from water, it dies. And I know it's a silly video game, but I think it's a great metaphor for life. That when we are separated from that life of God, the block doesn't cease to exist, but everything that was lively about it, the color, the vibrancy, dies. Now, those blocks, I Googled it, it can't bring them back. But what that game can't do, Jesus can do. We were the gray block that was separated from water, separated from life. And while that gray block couldn't be brought to, back to life, this soul could. And when we're brought back to him, he does something in us. We were born again. We were resurrected mightily. We were not just saved from further deterioration. We started the process of going in reverse. Death in reverse. You started being, the Bible says, though our outer body is decaying day by day, our inner man is being renewed. Whatever is happening in your body, the inner man is going the opposite direction. You're getting younger. You're getting more alive in Christ. And here's what he says. How much more, now that we've been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? And that's what a believer should look like. Not someone who's just been saved by, from hell, but someone that's been saved by life. You haven't just been saved from something. You've been saved for something. And that's the way we live. As people alive to God. He says, and not only this, but we also exult in God. What does exult mean? It means to boast, to be proud, to celebrate, to rejoice in. We exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. We've received it. So would you receive the reconciliation? Before we close, I want to bring... Back to your minds, one more story. If you got time for one more story, it's from the Bible. <laughs> so now you have to say yes. Some of you guys remember Luke, a man named Zacchaeus. <laughs> or Zacchaeus, whatever he was and whoever he was, 2,000 years later, we remember him for being tiny. When I, was in, when I was in children's church, we had a song. Some of you may remember it. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up on the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Right? Can you imagine living your life after this? Has so many, yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you. 
After this, having so many things to your name, whatever you did in your life, 2,000 years later, people remember, oh, it's that short guy, right? It's a wee, wee little man. It's even worse than short. There's short and then there's wee. Wee little man. <laughs> Poor guy. Anyways, he's reconciled to Jesus, so I don't think he would consider himself poor. Luke 19, he says, he entered Jericho. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. We've talked about this before, but tax collectors, if they were rich, they got rich off the backs of their own people. They worked for the bad guys. They worked for the oppressors. They worked for the occupying army, the occupying empire. And if you got rich, it means you took extra from your own people. Not only was he a tax collector, he was chief of all the tax collectors. He's like a mob boss. This guy's in charge of all the, all the, the scammers, all these people that are collaborators with the Romans and stealing from their own people. And he's gotten rich. Can you imagine that guy spending his money in your shop and you're like, he's spending my money? That guy got rich because he took extra? Because the Romans say take 10%, but he says, oh no, it's 17%. And he takes the extra 7 can you imagine? Nobody likes this guy. In fact, Jesus, in most of his ministry, if he was using a metaphor for a bad sinner, he used the word tax collector, the phrase tax collector. Can you imagine your job is, is what we use to, to describe a sinner? It's your, whatever your job is, that's who we're always naming. Can you imagine? Even a tax collector can be saved. You'd be like, hey... Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was, and he was unable because of the crowd. For he was small in stature. Okay, Luke, we got it. So he ran on ahead, and he climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him. For he was about to pass through that way. I don't know too many rich people that would do that. Do you know many rich people would go climb a tree so they could see better? I mean, most of them would just pay somebody. They put me on your shoulders. Or, hey, get out of the way. I imagine his fellow citizens were kind of happy he couldn't see him, maybe making a joke about it, like, hey, stand here. <laughs> like, ah, he can't see, too bad for him. But as rich as he is, he's un he, he, he puts his dignity aside and he just climbs this tree just so he can see Jesus. Something drove him to that. I mean, we're talking about a time where the, the, the leading Pharisees wouldn't even leave their house to go welcome to Jesus. But Zacchaeus would climb a tree to see him. Look at this. When Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said, hey, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for today I must stay at your house. In their culture, we've said it before, but if you stay at someone's house, if you even eat at their house, you're showing them honor. They're showing you honor by receiving you, but you're showing them great honor by going and staying at their house. You're saying, I, I accept you. And theirs is a culture of hospitality, and hospitality is paramount, and who you welcome and who you say no to matters. And Jesus says, I must stay at your house. Jesus makes the first move. Zacchaeus doesn't invite him. Jesus invites himself. And here's what happens. He says, I must stay at your house. And he hurried and he came down and he received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, he's gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And the Pharisees, listen to this, guys, because they were separated from God. Jesus said this. He said, you don't know God. He says, you know the scriptures, but you don't know God. And so because they were separated from God, when you're separated from God, you still have religion. In fact, you might have more religion than anyone else. But your religion has become dead. It's become dead religion. 
It's a framework that was meant to house God's presence that doesn't have God's presence. So you build more framework because the house needs to have some sort of purpose. They had so many rules keeping people from God that Jesus said, you Pharisees, you religious leaders, you stand at the gates of the kingdom and you will not enter in and you don't let anyone else go in either. They, they, they would stand and keep people out of God's kingdom. They themselves wouldn't go in. And that, that's a tragedy. But this man, see, every time there's a miracle that happened the wrong way or the wrong time, the wrong place, they criticize it. They're constantly inserting themselves between God and somebody. They're separators. But here's what happens. He's gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. He must be a sinner too. He's a drunkard and a glutton. He has a demon. His mother, I heard she wasn't married when she got pregnant. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, seems to me they didn't even get to the house yet. But he stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I'll give to the poor. If I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'll give him back four times as much. This very rich man is not going to be very rich very much longer. He's about to give away half. Plus, if he defrauded anyone, and he, he has, he's going to pay back four times what he stole. What's going to be left? doesn't matter to him. All he wants is this. He's willing to sell the treasure to buy the field. Sell everything to buy the field that has the treasure. You're the treasure. Isn't this crazy that Jesus talked to religious people like the rich young ruler who said, I kept all the law. And he said, what can I do to enter the kingdom? And Jesus said, just sell everything you have. Give it to the poor and follow me. And the man went away sad. But this sinner wasn't even asked to do that. He volunteers it. You know, when we live according to the law, we look for loopholes. When we live according to grace, we go above and beyond. Grace always goes further. You know, it's always crazy when people are like, well, I don't know, if you too much grace and people just start thinking they can sin. That's not the grace I read about in the scripture. I, I read that according to the law, you're going to rebel and you're going to try to find ways to snuggle up to it. But when you're living according to grace, you don't even go close. You go further. Here's what he says. If I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'll give him back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Because he too is a son of Abraham. Think about what that means. He'd been disowned by his own people. He was considered no longer a son of Abraham because he'd worked for the Romans. But God's, Jesus says this man is a son of Abraham. Today, something was restored. Something was reconciled. And he says this, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus came to restore what's been broken. He came to bring back what had been lost. He came to reconcile all things to himself. I love that. He came. He said, I came to seek them out. You know, Jesus didn't just say, I've come, and if somebody comes to me and they want help, I'll give it. He says, I came to seek and save the lost. We're not just, you know, in our Christian culture, we call seekers the, one that are, the ones that are looking for God. Oh, they're seekers. We should be the seekers looking for them, looking for them. 
God, who are you already working on? What weird little dude sitting in a tree somewhere? And nobody likes them. And everyone's cut them off. And everyone's disowned them. And everyone says, that person will never be godly. Who's that person that you're working on? Because that's my ministry. That's your ministry. It's a ministry of reconciliation. You see reconciliation there. Watch what happens when that gray block turned back to color. And that man get just a moment of reconciliation. Just a few steps of reconciliation. And he's already got zeal to fix everything. Just a few moments of reconciliation, and that's how he acts. When the people who'd been godly for years couldn't be further from God. This man is with Jesus for minutes, and he says, I'll give everything away. I'll repay back four times what I stole. Watch what reconciliation can do. You know, friends, we have got to stop being disappointed in the world for acting like the world. They're going to act like the world. They don't know God. Why are you surprised? The solution is not that they act better. The solution is that they would know him. And if they know him, we will be better. We will change. But you can't change before you know him. He's the changing force. He's the transformer. He's the renewer. He's the resurrector. And so Paul said, oh, it's not my job to judge the world. It's our job to judge ourselves. And that's why I've got it. We look at the world and we're like, oh, my. We tick, we tisk, tisk, tisk. That's our responsibility. They're ours to win. They're ours to love. They're ours to preach to. That's our field. Yeah, they're in darkness. Of course they act like they're in darkness because they are in darkness. So were you. It's not a weird thing when dead people act dead. It's a weird thing when living people act dead. And so what bothers me more is not dead people acting dead. It's when the church acts dead. It's when living people play dead. I've never seen a dead person play alive. They either are or they aren't. But I've seen living people play dead. The world can't pretend that they're alive, but the church can pretend that they're dead. And friends, I'm, I'm urging you like the scripture says. Remember, Paul was saying this to a believing church. He said, be reconciled. Be reconciled. So I want you to receive that today. And if you'll stand with me, we're going to believe God that he would do a work in us of reconciliation.